it is t- too loud. try that. Now it's not too loud. Okay, great. It is totally unnecessary for me to... Wow, it's still loud, isn't it? Let's try again. Is that too loud? Is that okay? Okay. Here we go. It's, what I'm trying to say is, it's totally unnecessary for me to draw your attention this morning to specific examples of the downward spiral that our culture is in morally. Uh, You hear and see examples of it every week, probably every day. And there's no need for me to rehearse those for us this morning. Our distress as Christians about the, again, downward spiral that our culture is in morally does not come or at least should not come from a self-righteous conviction that we would never do such immoral things that we see going on in our culture today. Maybe, individually, there are certain sins that you hear about being um, applauded in the culture that you think, well, I've never done that. I've never even been tempted to do that. But you will not have to look very far among the body of Christ, whatever the sin is, to find a brother or sister somewhere who has been tempted and perhaps even has been guilty of whatever sin you want to pick off the litany of sins that are dominating our culture. So we don't look at the bad things that are going on in the culture and say, we would never do things like that. We're the, we're the morally upright people who have squeaky clean pasts and never do anything wrong. And so we look down our noses at all the wrong things that are going on around us. Instead, we admit and confess that among us are sinners of every stripe and kind. There are brothers and sisters among us, even if it's not you in particular, who are guilty of any sin you can find in the Scripture just about. The difference is that we have been forgiven. If you're a Christian, you've turned to Christ, you've confessed your sin, you've trusted in Him, and so that sin has been washed clean. You have been made new. So when we look on a morally degraded culture in distress, our distress, again, does not come from self-righteousness. Our distress does not come from not being able to imagine how anybody could sin in such a way. Our distress comes from knowing sometimes by our own painful experience how destructive it is to live contrary to the will and the design of God. More than that, we are distressed because we see in Scripture a connection between the immorality all around us and God's judgment upon man for turning his back 
upon his creator. And we see that in particular in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 32, which is our text for this morning. Romans chapter 1, we will begin in verse 24. What we are seeing in this first chapter of Romans is Paul relating to us God's indictment upon all humanity. That he's going to say later, there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul is describing for us, sometimes in painful detail, the corruption that exists in all of humanity. That there's none of us exempt. And in chapter 1, he is telling us the theme here is very easy to pick up in verse 24 and in verse 26 and in verse 28. Three times Paul says that God has handed humanity over to certain particular sins as a result of their turning their back on God. The fundamental problem is that man has rejected his creator. And the result is that God has given them up to various kinds of sin. And it is this sin, right? our, our sin of rejecting God and every other form of sin, Paul says, that is uh, what God is pouring out his wrath against. In verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Of men. So let's look together at verses 24 to 32 at how God has responded in judgment to man's rejection of his creator. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, Again, the structure here is very easy to see, right? There are three times that God, we are told that God gave man up to a certain sin or set of sins, right? Verse 24, verse 26, 
and verse 28. And each time, it is a result of man rejecting God. So, for example, verse 23, we are told that men exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then in verse 25, we are told they were given up because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So, the reason why God has given men up to these sins, each time, Paul tells us, is because man has traded the Creator for his creation. He's exchanged the real God for false gods of his own creation, his own imagination. In Paul's day, there was plenty of what we might call traditional idolatry. When Paul went to Athens, he saw statue after statue of uh, false gods that people worshipped, even an altar to an unknown god, just in case they missed one. Right? Idolatry was rampant in that form. Today, in most Western cultures, that kind of idolatry is not prominent. It is present. Right? You go to a Thai food restaurant, you're likely to see it. Right? Um, It is present, but it's not dominant, at least not for now, in Western culture. But idolatry is still present. Because any time someone turns their back on God and doesn't worship God and thank God and honor God as God, they always replace Him with something else. It might be a person, it might be a possession, it might be a passion. It could be any number of things, but all of us make something ultimate. All of us give first place to something, even if it's ourselves. Everybody who has turned away from the Lord has put something else in his place. And Paul says this is, this is the case of humanity in general, in mass. This is true of all mankind. We are all, all of us by nature and by choice have turned our backs on the Lord, and the result of that, he says, the first result of that is that God hands them over to immorality, and in particular, to sexual sin. In verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That impurity there that he's talking about is a reference to sexual sin. We know this because Paul uses that word that way over and over and over in his letters. For example, in Galatians 5.19, when Paul begins his list of the works of the flesh, he mentions sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. In 2 Corinthians 12.21, Paul says, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And in Colossians 3 and 1 Thessalonians 4, he uses the word the same way, to refer to sexual sin. So it can include more than that, but it likely does not include less than that here when Paul uses this word. We also know that that's probably what he's speaking of here, because he says that this involves the dishonoring of their bodies. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, Uh, Verse 18, we read this chapter earlier. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So in sexual immorality, the body itself is dishonored, right? 
is sinned against. So that's what Paul is talking about here. The, the prevalence of all kinds of sexual sin, Paul is saying. Those are, those are a problem, but they are not the root problem. The prevalence and um, abundance of sexual sin among mankind, Paul says, is a result of man turning their backs on God and God saying, fine, you want to do it your way? Do it your way. Go your own way. And he gives humanity up to this kind of sin. And again, he makes clear in verse 25 the reason why. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So it's important to say that sexual sin is not humanity's root problem. It might be the one that ends up on the news the most. It is a serious problem. Paul doesn't take it lightly. God doesn't take it lightly. We ought not take it lightly. But it is not the root problem. Uh, The root problem is humanity's rejection of God. The root problem is idolatry. The root problem is refusing to thank and praise and honor the Creator. The result is God giving mankind up to this kind of sexual sin, which also tells us that what many people proclaim as a freedom is actually, in a way, a judgment. It is something God has handed mankind over to. So that's the first uh, of the three statements of God giving man up to sin. The second one begins in verse 26. And this one is even more distressing and disturbing, right? Verse 26, Paul says, for this reason, again, the reason being what he said in verse 25, that man has rejected the creator and turned to the creature. He's committed idolatry. He's turned his back on God. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the reason for giving mankind up to uh, this kind of sexual sin, to homosexual sin, is again the same root reason. It's not a further rebellion or a further rejection. It's the same rejection. It's the same rebellion. It's turning against the Lord. And Paul calls this uh, this sin dishonorable. Uh, these are dishonorable passions, he says. He uh, talks about this being shameless. Uh, he talks about it being contrary to nature. In other words, it's contrary to how God created men and women. It's contrary to how He designed us. And this is evident, right? We don't even have to have Scripture to understand this. It's clear that God made us male and female. The Bible says that's how God made us in the beginning. He made both the man and the woman in His image, but He made them different. He made them to complement one another, the woman to be helper to the man. And uh, yet this kind of sin, Paul says, goes against the Creator's design. And it goes against creation. It is obvious from how God has made us That the man is meant to be with the woman, and the woman with the man, and not a man with a man, or a woman with a woman. But God has given humanity up to this sin because of their rejection of God. Now, it's important to say that this 
Sin is not new. It's old. Uh, it's old. If you want to know it's old, go read the laws in Leviticus. It's at least as old as Leviticus. Go read about Greek culture. Right? It's, this is an old sin. This is something that has been present uh, among mankind for thousands of years. Uh, and it is a result of humanity, again, turning their back on God. God has given man up to this kind of sin because of man's rejection of God. Now, um, <clears throat> it's important to say um, a few things about this. Because this is so um, such a hot button issue in our culture, it has become so uh, prevalent, such a front burner topic, right, that uh, I-, I want to say more than what Paul says here. I want us to have sort of the big picture of what the Bible says about homosexuality, about this kind of sin. Right? Um, people sometimes are eager to say, the Bible says that this is an abomination. Right? And when they say that, sometimes what they are trying to say is, this sin is in a class by itself. Right? This is so bad. Right? This is so bad that it's like we've reached another, a whole other level. This is just, you know, sort of off the charts bad sin. But that's not the case. The Bible does call homosexuality an abomination in Leviticus 8.22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. But there are plenty of things the Bible calls an abomination. That's not exclusive to this kind of sin. For example, in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, Solomon tells us in Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And here they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So yes, homosexuality is an abomination, but so is pride. So is lying. So is sowing division. What that means is God hates these things. He does hate homosexuality. He also hates pride. So let's let's not talk about this as though this sin was in a class by itself. right? As though this is... You know, um, something that is, this is the only thing in the Bible that's called that, or, or something. That's not the case. God does hate it, just like He hates pride, just like He hates lying. Right, so, Paul says God has handed men over to this, right? It is an abominable thing, but so are many other sins. And we need to note what does Paul mean here when he says um, at the end of verse 27 that. Men are committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What is that talking about? What does he mean by that? It sounds like, and this is how I had read it before, it sounds like because they are committing this particular kind of sin that God has brought upon them another kind of punishment that's fitting for this kind of sin. But as I began to read commentaries and I read current guys and I read something old and Many, many people say 
that what Paul is saying here is that the error is once again their idolatry. They're turning from God and the penalty is the sexual sin itself that Paul has handed them over to. It's just a restatement of the same thing. Here's how one scholar says it. He says, It has been recognized from early times that the reference to this error and penalty is more probably to their sexual perversion itself as the punishment for their abandonment of the true God, rather than to a necessary or appropriate but unspecified punishment for their sexual perversion. So the punishment is the sexual perversion. The error is their idolatry, their turning from the Lord. That seems to be all he's talking about there. So again, he's restating the same point over and over again. Now, what are we to make of people who have been uh, caught up in this sin, who have committed this kind of sin, who have gone this way? Is it possible for them to be forgiven? Is it possible for them to be saved? It absolutely is. This is not the unforgivable sin. That's another mistake that can often be made in thinking about this. We can talk about it in such a way that we come across as saying, well, once you've gone down that road, there's just no turning back. But that is not what the Bible teaches. I have said before, and I will say again, I think the most important passage in Scripture for how to think about and understand homosexuality is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. It is powerful, it is poignant, it is to the point, and it is crystal clear on both fronts, both about how God uh, hates it as, as sin, but also about how people can be forgiven. So let me read these verses for us again real quickly. Again, we read this chapter earlier, but I, I want you to hear these words again. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's what Paul says. First he gives them the bad news. You need to know that you cannot live in these kinds of unrepentant sin and expect to go to heaven. If you live as a drunkard, if you live as an adulterer, as you live, if you live as somebody in homosexuality, if you live as a swindler, any of those things, you can profess to be a Christian, but if this is the way you live, Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It does matter how you live. If your life is given over to one of these sins or more than one of these sins and you don't repent, you don't turn to the Lord, you have no grounds for thinking that you will inherit the kingdom of God, that you will go to heaven. But he says, and he's writing this to the church, he says, such were some of you. That means in the church at Corinth, there were people who had been drunkards. People who had been involved in homosexuality. People who had been adulterers. People who had been swindlers. That's who you were. But he's speaking in the past tense. That's not who you are now. That's who you were. But something happened to you. You were washed. 
made clean, you were sanctified, you were made holy, you were justified, you were declared righteous in the sight of God, despite all of your sin, because you turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, you have now been cleared of all those things. You have been cleansed, you have been forgiven, you have been made new. And that is no longer who you are. So there's bad news and good news. God does not take these kinds of sin lightly. Whether it's drunkenness, whether it's sexual immorality, whatever it is. He does not take them lightly. Paul is not soft on these issues. He says very plainly, if this is how you live, if this is how someone is conducting themselves, they have no grounds for thinking that they will inherit the kingdom of God. But for anyone who repents... Anyone who trusts in Jesus, there is forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is righteousness, there is sanctification. Anyone who turns from their sin to the Lord and calls upon Him will be saved. The Bible promises that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when we repent of our sin and we confess our sin to the Lord, the Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus has already paid the price. He has already paid the penalty. If we turn to Him, we trust in Him, our sins are forgiven. So, homosexuality is not an unforgivable sin. Any more than drunkenness is. Any more than adultery is. They are serious. They are grave but the cross is greater. Right? Jesus' uh, atonement on the cross is more powerful. Right? It is able to cleanse even the vilest of sinners. It's able to cleanse us. So Paul says he's handed them over to sexual immorality because of their idolatry. He's handed, handed them over to homosexuality because of their idolatry. And you might wonder, are there any other kinds of sin, non-sexual sins that God has handed men over to because of their idolatry. And there is. Look at verse 28, just briefly. Verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So again, same pattern. Same pattern. Men know that there's a God, but they have judged God unfit to know. We don't want to know Him. We don't want to be in relationship with Him. We don't want to be accountable to Him. We want to go our own way. And since they have judged God unfit to know, God gives them an unfit mind, a debased mind. He gives them up to all kinds of sin. And then Paul gives us a a litany of sins that God has handed men over to. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, he says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Right, so he, all these kinds of sin, Paul says, God has given men up to. And not just the ones that we would think would be on the list of really bad sins like murder or you know, envy, but also sins that we tend to sort of downplay and think are not that important like gossip or disobedience to parents right, or being proud. All of these things... Paul says, are things that God has handed men over to as a result of their sin, to do and be filled with all manner of evil. And the capstone of all of this is in verse 32. 
He says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So not only do they know there's a God. Remember Paul said, we all know there's a God from creation. Not only do they know that there's a God, they've decided they don't want to know that God. And they know that the God who exists rightly punishes with death people who live this way, and yet they continue to do it and applaud other people who do it and approve other people doing the same things. They have utterly rejected not only the Lord, but His commands. They do their own thing. They go their own way with no apparent desire to heed the consequences, but instead flouting God's command and it seems like scoffing at the consequences. And if that seems like too much to say that to say that they deserve to die for these things that they do, that sounds too harsh. Think about these words from uh, Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians of the church. He said, It is fitting that the soul which deserts God should be deserted by its own body through bodily death, and in the end be deserted by God through eternal death. In other words, they are getting exactly what they deserve, exactly what they've asked for. They don't want God. They desert Him. Then their body, which God has given them, will desert them in death. And ultimately, God Himself will desert them, giving them exactly what they wanted. This is exactly why Paul says that he is unashamed of the gospel. Because this is where humanity stands apart from Christ. We are all under the wrath of God. We have all turned our back on the Creator. We have all been given up to various kinds of sin. And it is only through the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel as a gift for us that we can be saved. It is only through knowing that Jesus has died in our place, that He has lived a perfect life, that if we turn to Christ, our sinful life gets wiped out, forgiven, is washed clean, and we are credited with Jesus' perfect righteousness so that we stand before God not only forgiven, but also righteous and holy in His sight because of what Jesus has done, no matter what we have done. Paul says, I have no shame in preaching that gospel. I have no hesitation to tell people that good news because everybody needs to hear it. Paul would say, I needed to hear it. And I want everyone to know, no matter where they are, no matter how far they have turned from God, no matter how long they have walked down the road away from the Lord, if they will turn to Him, if they will trust in Christ, there is forgiveness, there is righteousness, there is salvation, there is deliverance in Jesus Christ for all who will come to Him. And that's good news. Let's pray. Thank you.